Okay, good evening. Thank you very much for coming to this lecture. It's the first of two lectures I'm going to be giving about cryptography. Cryptography is a really interesting subject. And these are my aims for tonight's lecture. I'm going to take you through the history of cryptography from the year dot to the 1970s. Cryptography appeals to everybody, I think, because of the, the paradox between having secrets and sharing secrets. And there are two children at the back that might want to share their secrets without the teacher knowing what they're sharing. It's something that appeals to all ages, and of course, uh, it appeals to people who are at war with each other and uh, during the Cold War and sending secrets around the world. It's an important topic. What we're going to do in this first lecture is cover conventional cryptography, which more or less takes us to the 1970s. And next week, we're going to talk about public key cryptography, which takes us from the 1970s up until the present. Cryptography is normally talked about in a complicated way. Public key cryptography, for instance, uses number theory, and it gets very arcane and hard to follow, and you lose track of what it's really about. A friend of mine, Neil Koblitz, has invented the word kid crypto to try and convey the ideas to children. So for those of you tonight who know far more about cryptography and what happened during World War II and so on, I hope you'll find interest in the way I'm trying to communicate the ideas so that teenagers and uh, people can pick up the interest and the excitement going on behind the cryptography. The particular issue I want to make clear tonight is the key distribution problem. And we'll see as we go through the lecture how this is something that created you know, lots of excitement during the war. And it's one of the things that next week, the public key distribution, we'll talk about how to solve that particular problem. But what I'm going to achieve tonight is to show you how important the key distribution problem is and why it's so interesting that it was solved, which we'll talk about next week. And finally, I'm going to talk about the reduced enigma. Tonight I'm lucky enough to have Simon Singh's real enigma, and I've also got a, a toy enigma that we'll talk about, and we can compare the two. And it's quite interesting, the insights that you can get out of a simpler enigma. So, let's put it in perspective. This is how most people would start electron cryptography, and that is not, not how I intend to proceed. Here is perhaps one of the oldest pieces of cryptography. It's the disk of Phytos, uh, 17th century BC, and nobody has yet decoded it. We don't know what the key is, as it were. And what's exciting about this is that these, uh, these shapes were imprinted. So it's possible there are other disks like this that are also imprinted with those symbols. I suppose also it's possible that it was made at the back of a classroom and uh, it was never intended for the teacher to understand it. We'll never know, perhaps. Or maybe it's a challenge for one of you to decode. Another classic example of codes is the Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone has got the same message essentially in three different languages. It's Greek, Demotic, and Hieroglyphic. Because the same message appears three times, it was possible to decode Hieroglyphics and Demotic for the first time. And of course this isn't really the Rosetta Stone, this is a mass mat. And uh, this is the first connection between cryptography and computer science for this lecture. But, uh, Let's get on to the 16th century. Here is an extract from Sir Arthur Throckmorton's diary. Okay? He's got some stuff in there written in clear text, and some of it is in code. Okay? So your question is, how would you decode what this message is? So, any, any suggestions? Frequency of uh, characters. Yeah, the frequency of characters. In English, E occurs more often, 
So um, if we go through these symbols, uh, there are several of these which tap things. Maybe those, those correspond to an E. But uh, Sir Arthur Throckmorton was a bit cleverer than that. The wishes hat, in fact, is a null. So he just throws those in every so often to change the letter frequencies. Another possibility uh, is that maybe the message has got no ease in it at all. Here is a, an amazing book which was first written in French and contains no ease. And it's been translated into English and the English translation has got no ease. So the letter frequency doesn't necessarily tell you all you hope it would do. Any more suggestions? Try and complete the sentence. Yes, we've got some hints. We could perhaps look at what the uh, Lord Chief Justice was up to and see if there are any cribs that we can get from messages he's already sent or what his girlfriend was called and stuff like that, which is what Sir Arthur Throckmorton was writing about. You can also look in the rest of the diary because there will be lots more text using the same code. That's right. Yes, common words. You can look for common words like D and look for a pattern THE that appears several times. And if he's got any sense, he would have coded common words like the perhaps as a single symbol to reduce the frequencies. And he might have used several symbols for the same word. Well, that's an idea about codes. Let's go back in time to Julius Caesar, who invented the Caesar Code. And Caesar codes have got an important property. They commute. Not only did Caesar commute across the channel, but his codes commute. The idea of commuting is as follows. 3 plus 4 is the same as 4 plus 3. That's because plus commutes. And Caesar codes commute in exactly the same way. Here, I have coded hello. I've coded it by shifting each letter along 3 along the alphabet. That's basically what a Caesar code is. I'm shifting 3. So H becomes K, E becomes H, and so on. And then I encode it using 5, so the K becomes P. So of course now I've shifted it along 8, and we get a P. If I do it in the other way, encoding first with 5 and then with 3, I still get a P to start with. So it doesn't matter which order the Caesar code is used in. And then I can decode in either order. Okay, this is a property that's quite useful. I'm now going to do some practical experiments where commuting codes will come in, come in handy. But why have the two pages there As it happens with the Caesar code, shifting three, then shifting five, there's the same shifting eight just once. That's not true of all codes, but this is a nice, simple example of a commuting code where we can encode things in different orders. To do this practically, it's going to be hard and slow to encode something like an English text. Instead, I'm going to ask a volunteer, and I don't know your name. Jim. Jim. Maybe I want you to write a message to Prue over there. So he's going to write a secret message. And rather than encoding it like Sir Arthur Throckmorton did by substituting letters and transposing them and stuff like that, we're going to put it in a box. And I've got a padlock for the box. And it's a nice, you see, it's a nice substantial padlock. And to unlock the padlock, you need the right key. This is exactly the same as to unlock Sir Arthur Throckmorton's code or Caesar code 
you need the right key. You need to know what the symbols are. You use a key. And when you've got the right key, the padlock opens. Okay? It's exactly the same thing. If you don't have the key, you're stuck. You can't decode the message. The message, in this case, would be locked in the box. In the disk of Phytos' case, the message is locked in history and we don't have the key anymore. So, I think it's quite a good metaphor for what the problems are. So, Jim is writing a message at the moment. And I'm going to give him a padlock and a key. And what he's going to do is lock it up in the box, in this padlock. So you can imagine, if you like, if you want to sort of think about this as being a realistic problem, uh, Jim might be in uh, Munich and he's trying to send a message to a U-boat in the Atlantic over there. And the idea is not to let the Allies, that's the British, decode the message. So it's got to remain secret, no matter how it goes across the room. Perhaps Simon will be an eavesdropper and try and open the box. So we'll take, which we can use radio as well, we can send the packet, this is also a good trick for teaching packet switching. We'll send the encoded message across the room, and it's locked, so this is a secret message. Simon will try and open the box. That's pretty secure. We'll get it through. So there you are, we can send a secret message across the room. Can, can you tell us what the message is? You can't open it. Why can't Prue open the box? She hasn't got the key. This is what's called the key distribution problem. The key's in the wrong place. Jim needs the key to lock the box up, or when you build the padlock or however you do it, if you've got your padlock factories over in Berlin or wherever they are, the key and the padlock are made in the same place. And somehow you've got to send the key, key across. How are you going to do that? Actually, I could close this lock without the key, unlike some of my bike locks. <laughs> so how, how, how am I going to get this over? Yeah. <laughs> One solution. That's, that's two keys. How would you do it with two keys? So, so what's the suggestion here? Shall we try? I'll take it back to the start again. Shall we try? Okay, so the suggestion here is we have a couple of keys that are identical, and Jim and Prue will be together somewhere. Jim slips up the key and says, use this, and then he goes off to Munich and Prue stays in London. Then you can send the message across because Prue will have the key. But that relies on you two meeting. Under conditions of war, that would be quite difficult. Probably what would have happened under war is that Prusian would start off in one of the ports and the submarine or whatever prison would set off with the keys. But we would have a, no, a, a non-mechanical key. Probably a non-mechanical key. Absolutely. Four day. Yes. yes we'll, we'll see how to do the non-mechanical key shortly. But it won't work with the internet. Supposing through somebody you've never met and you want to send her a secret, secure message. Now, one of the things I didn't mention is you can use cryptography for both secrecy and for security, which is worth mentioning, because this idea that Jim might want to buy a product that Prue is advertising over there, Jim certainly doesn't want to distribute his keys all around the world, because then anybody could open the message. 
he only wants proof to be able to open the message. So proof can be found on a website. Jim wants to buy some baskets from proof. So he wants to send some money in this box, perhaps. Just, just briefly show you how you can send money securely. Here's a secret message. And we don't know what it is. Supposing I tamper with it, because I don't understand the code, I'm going to make a mess of it. If I knew what it meant, I could change it any way I liked and say, you know, the Lord Chief Justice is in love with somebody else and I could put a particular name in. But if I try and fiddle with it, because I don't know the code, it'll be obvious I fiddled with it. So even if I'm not interested in secrecy, I can use cryptography for security. So this is why maybe Jim doesn't mind everybody knowing he's going to buy some baskets. Because he doesn't want anybody to tamper with the money he's sending across. And he doesn't want the wrong people to use his money to buy something else. <coughs> so, we've got some suggestions. You could have met Jim, because in the real world, as it were, particularly the modern world of the internet, that's not a possible way of getting a key around. So the problem is, how do you get a key from here, or rather, how do you get the message from Jim to Brooke? You could number the keys so they're only used once. That was right. Used to How would you do that? Yes. Yes. Exactly. You need some commuting blocks. Unfortunately, padlocks work like that. So you look it up. I'm just going to prove this padlock over here. So now we've got two separate codes. We've got two separate padlocks. Jim has got a padlock and a key, and Prue has got a padlock and a key. So let's try the protocol that you've just suggested. You lost her. So it's now, as it were, locked with Caesar 3. You still can't do that. You can lock it with Caesar 5. Sounds pretty locked. So it's now locked with Caesar 8, and it goes back. You can unlock your padlock. Now let us see reliance on the padlock going on and coming off in a different order. That's why the case has to be used. Still tricky, yeah? Okay. And now Proof can unlock it and get out the secret message. Now, any problems? No, they can use different keys. If they both happen to select the same key, what would that, what would that matter? Uh, no, it wouldn't matter because she's encoding it again with the same, with another padlock using the same key. There are two problems with it. One of them is, did you notice the box went across the room three times? In fact, most people aren't interested in what the secret messages are. In fact, it's not obvious that Jim's written anything that makes sense anyway. But what is, what is more interesting is that Jim is talking to Prue, and for instance, both of you are IRA terrorists, and you're now connected. And the code, you might have been saying, that buy some roses, and that might be a code word for something else. Knowing the message isn't quite as an interesting bit of intelligence as knowing that two particular people are talking to each other. And the fact that you've had to speak to each other three times is a big weakness of this trick. 
There's another weakness, which is much more interesting, and I'll now use Simon to be the eavesdropper. So this time, so this time around, we're sending a message from James through Andrew. So we've got Jim's secret message in it, and we're going to do exactly what we did before. But something will go wrong. Brilliant. Jim has padlocked it and he sent off the package into the ether. It lands on Simon, who's the eavesdropper. And he's going to do what Prue used to do. Now you know that Jim has never seen Prue's padlock and Jim has not got the key to Prue's padlock. So now the packet goes back and Jim gets the packet just as he did before. And he removes his padlock just as he did before. Just as he did before. <laughs> right? Now goes to Simon. And the eavesdropper can read the message. So far as Jim's concerned, everything's happened exactly as it happened before. And now the worst is that Simon can do what he wants to the message. He can now lock the box, send it to prove. Through loss in the third sends it back to Simon. Simon reads his padlock, sends it back to Prue, and Prue believes exactly the same thing as happened before. So Jim and Prue both believe they're communicating with each other. But Simon has made arbitrary changes in the middle, and this cheap protocol we thought we had of sending messages without having to distribute keys has got this nasty weakness. But how has Simon got possession of that block without Prue's knowing? Because because they're, they're out of, in, in principle, they're out of sight. Yeah. They will be out of sight. Yeah. Simon could be in Paris, say, he's dropping on your message from Munich going to London. Yes, but Sue would send it back to Jim. No, she would send it back to the courier who gave it to him. And it would go back to the chap who's in Stettingham. So, what I've shown you there is this problem about the key distribution. That to send a secret message, you have to lock it. The lock and the padlock are essentially the same thing. So, if you know the key, you know the padlock. If you know the padlock, you know the key. And uh, one of the things that's worth saying is that I, in, in the internet world, if you're using padlocks, you can see the padlocks. I spent an evening sawing a padlock in half. In principle, when you saw the padlock in half, you could see what the key is, and you could then reassemble it and inset things. So if you were doing this electronically, using something like padlocks isn't good enough. But we'll talk about that next week. I'll leave you with one idea. We'll talk a bit about public key cryptography. Here is a padlock. And we'll do something different. Through with the key. Give the padlock to anybody in the room. We'll send a message from Jim's crew. So, that's Jim's original message. But this time, he's not going to lock it with his padlock. Okay. He's going to lock it with Prue's padlock. So the key has been left over with Prue. The padlock now could be a public padlock. Anybody could use this. As soon as this locks up, nobody in the room but Prue can unlock the message. With the proviso that there isn't somebody like me in the middle of the room who saws it in half. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
So, what we've talked about with this little demonstration is essentially where cryptography was right up until the 1970s. And in particular, this is the way it was during the Second World War. So, the most famous bit of the Second World War perhaps was the Enigma. And I'll tell you a bit about its history and then I'll show you the, the Enigmas we've got here. Uh, an American, Edward Hedlund, invented a, a rotor machine which he tried to patent and sell to the American Navy. Nobody was terribly interested in mechanical cryptography because everybody was a gentleman in those days. Arthur Sherbius had a patent in 1918 for a mechanical machine, not, not like this, but with a, essentially a printer, so there's an enormous typewriter, and he would have sold it for about £20,000 in today's money. It wasn't a very practical machine. But hey, we're in 1970 during the war. People were in it. Generally, apparently, uh, Willie Korn uh, made Sherbius's thing a bit more complicated by having exchangeable rotors, and then Paul Bernstein thought of having a fixed reflector, and then Churchill wrote a book called The World Crisis in 1923, and he rather indiscreetly said that when we sent the Magdeburg, we were intercepting German messages. The Germans up until then had believed it was something to do with Mexican traitors and things like that because they believed their ciphers were impregnable. But Churchill said we were reading their ciphers and that made the Germans panic and suddenly Sherbius was in business. And he did a demonstration in the German post office in 1924 and he went into mass production in 1925. The German Navy picked it up in 25 and the German army made slight variations and picked it up in 1928. In the 1930s, he was building machines like this, which cost in those days about £200 in today's money. Then the plug board was invented to make it more sophisticated, and I'll explain the plug board later. And then the fancy reflection was put in towards the end of the war when the Germans were starting to worry that the security wasn't good enough. One of the problems was these things sat on submarines in a particular position, and changing its size. You know, bringing them all back and changing them all would have been a bit complicated. The rotors were exchangeable, and they invented some half-size rotors so that you could get twice as many into the same space to get more complexity. There was another aspect of this very similar machine called the Lorentz machine, which Hitler used and was a much bigger challenge to decode. Let's have a look inside it. This is Sherbius's US patent. One of the things that's amusing about this is that had we known uh, we could have saved spending money on German double agents getting getting some of the descriptions of how the thing worked because it was publicly patented and the patent office down the road had got descriptions of it. This is essentially how it works. When you, when you press the button here, uh, on this particular model, some solenoid here pulls something, turns this rotor around, these all turn around in funny ways, and then the lights come on in essentially random ways that have no obvious relationship to the button pressing. That's where the code comes from. So these people are not aware of that button? Apparently. But it wasn't even a full keyboard there. It's, well, yes. I think he's cut away the keyboard so that you can see, see through it. This is a diagram in the patent. This is an early Swiss enigma. This one has got four rotors. It's got a 26 keyboard. 26 key keyboard and an external set of lights to make it easier to use. And uh, this is Simon's Enigma, which I'll show you here when I've worked out how to 
Men kan måtte tænke over, at du gør det. Det er så slet ikke noget. Ja. So, imagine you're on a submarine. You'd obviously be on the other side of it, or your side of it. Uh, in the front of this is the footboard, which allows all of these buttons to be rewired. And they will be rewired every day according to, according to a schedule. You press a key here, and when the keys are pressed, the wiring, it's easier to open the whole lid, the wiring goes up to the rotors at the top, the wiring goes in one side, wiggles around, goes back and comes to a light bulb. And every time you press a button, the rotor clicks around, so the next time you press the button, it goes around in a different wiggly way and comes back to light a different light bulb. So, I'll show you how this, this works. There you go. So I've pressed A and whatever letter that is, presumably an O, has come on. I'll press it again. So that's the basic idea. The key for this is, of course, the settings of these rotors. They'll be turned around, the plug board will be set up to mix up the wires in a particular way, and these rotors can be removed to swap them over for some other ones. You can't see the plug board. Right, there's the plug boards up there. There you go. So you can see how the, the wires from each of the 26 buttons is rerouted into a different place. Simon, I think it came off a U-boat, didn't it, in 1944 from the tsunami one. Because these things are great fun, it'd be nice to let uh, teenagers and students have a go playing with one. So I've built one that's a bit... Just find it here. So I've built one with four buttons on it. There we go. And this one is made with industrial buttons on the top here, so that uh, you can't break it, and it's not an antique like this one, so it's, so it's not, not as important if, if it is um, mishandled. But it does exactly the same thing as this real one. The only, only change I've made, essentially, is I've reduced 26 buttons down to four buttons, so it makes it much simpler. And I can lock the rotors so that every time I press this thing, the E lights up, every time I press that, A lights up, and, and so on. Wiring up rotors is a bit of a mouse game, so instead I've got in the middle of it a uniselector, which is just in there, which is a 1950s, this is an unused uniselector from a 1950s telephone exchange. They were used in Bletchley Park to help decode uh, fish and enigma messages. And now I've switched on the the rotors, when you press, it clicks around, and every time I press the same letter, you get different codes, just like, just like the real letter. So we can send messages with it. And on the real Enigma, you rotate the rotors to get a particular position. On this one, these things will set 16 positions, because the rotors have only got four positions rather than 26 positions, as on the real one. And supposing I choose that as the initial position, it's now reset itself to that position, and then it will always code itself the same way. So if I press A, uh, if I press this T button, A, S, I reset it, and it will do A, S again. So, and it's got a plug board on it. Yeah. You can take the plugs out and rearrange it. 
And if I reset it, we'll probably get a different code. A, S, that's interesting, isn't it? Which is one of the things, did you notice it hasn't changed? Push it back. I've changed the whiteboard settings because I've removed the headlines, but it hasn't changed the code. Any suggestions why? The plugboard is not as good as it's made out to be. In fact, one of the insights I've had building this is that Chobi has started with a 26-button machine, which is really complicated. And then over the years, it got more and more complicated. Have more rotors, have a reflector, have a plugboard, swap the rotors over for other rotors, and so on. You start off with something very complicated and make it more and more complicated. You never notice that some of the concepts in it are flawed. And I've just shown you an example where the basic plugboard concept isn't as good as it's cut out to be. Another interesting flaw with it is, obviously in this modern world of computer science, you know that any message could be sent in binary, with zeros and ones. So when I decided to build the simplified enigma, well, you just need two buttons, zero and one. Well, let's see what happens if you have zero and one. We'd have two buttons. When you press this, you see the lights coming on? Uh, let's move it that way. So I'm going to repeatedly press T. Do you notice what's not happening? T never, never comes on. That's the basic property of the Enigma. When you press a letter, that is never coded as itself. So if you had a binary Enigma, North would always come out as one, and one would always come out as naught. It wouldn't be a very good code. And you then might realize this is not a good design. In fact, let's put that over there. Here is a circuit diagram from a German Navy manual for the Enigma. And this is exactly the circuit that both of these machines use. Let me take you through it. They've only shown two buttons, and they've called them Y and Z rather than naught and one, as it were. This is the switch, when you press the button down, the switch bends over, there's the light bulbs, and there are the rotors at the top. So imagine electricity coming in down here, and we'll press the Z button down, which joins up at the bottom, so we go up there, through the rotors, bubble up in an incredibly complicated way, come back down here, this button Y is not pressed, so we go up right here, and the Y light comes on. So if you press Z, if the rotors haven't gone clicked around, Y will come on. Equally, if we press down Y and join this up, then the circuit goes around the other way, and the Z light comes on. So it's ironic, the German Navy manual has got instructions that illustrate exactly the problem I'm talking about. But because they were thinking 26 letters is really complicated and 26 factorial is really big, they didn't notice that this was exposing the, the floor. I'll talk about why it's a big floor in a moment, but let's have a look. This is a bit more about the reduced enigma. I've got four keys instead of the 26 on Simons. Uh, instead of having a, an exchangeable reflector, I've got a fixed reflector. There are Four factorial ways of taking four wires and muddling them up and coming out on the other side. 
four factorial is 24. So you'd expect there would be 24 reflectors, or in the real enigma's case, you'd expect there were 26 factorial reflectors. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Yes, that's a good question. The all of these things at the top, that's, that's the bullish complex, these are rotors, and the thing there reflects the wiring back through the rotors again. The reflector was introduced to try and make the thing more complicated. But in fact, if you imagine it, if you don't know what position the rotors are in, the wires get muddled up and then get reflected, and they get muddled up through the rotors, the same rotors. It doesn't increase the amount of muddling. So it hasn't made it more complicated. On my reduced enigma, there is a fixed reflector. You can't change it, unfortunately. But of the 24 possible reflectors you could have with four wires, only two of them work. The others are all degenerate. And out of the four factorial possible rotors you could have in the middle of the machine, most of those are degenerate. There are only four that actually work, and I've, I've chosen of those four. Two of them give you key lengths of length 8 rather than of length 16, and I used two that gave you key lengths of 16. And the other change I've made is I've used a, this, uh, you can't see it up there anymore, I've used a uniselect which has got the wiring on the outside, and it's much easier to do than a rotor that's got the wiring hidden on the inside. So that summarises, for a reduced enigma, you would hope that the numbers were 24, 24, 24, or 16 for the key length. And on my machine, the actual numbers, the best you can get is 6, 2, 10, 4, and I can change the key length depending on whether you're trying to demonstrate it or not. A thing that's amusing is that there are only, uh, there are only four actual rotors you could have if you're simulating it, but if you use the uniselector that's in there, there are three to the 50 different uniselector wirings you could have for this machine. So there are a huge number of keys to choose from. I've only wired up one, so there's only one just there. And this picture here shows why some of the rotor wirings don't work. The rotor wiring I've got at the top has got wires going straight through. That's one of the 24 permutations. Obviously, the wires go straight through. When the rotor rotates, the wires still go straight through. So it's a useless rotor. And uh, here is the rotor at the bottom. If the wires go round one, when you rotate it, the wires still go round one. So again, there's no point having that as a rotor. And here's a rotor where the, the top two wires and the bottom two wires cross over. When you rotate it, the side two wires cross over. When you rotate it again, you're back where you started from. So that rotor's only got two positions. So there are only four rotors, that, that, that and that, which have got all four possible positions. And two combinations of those give you key lengths that are too short. How would you set up the Enigma? This is the sort of stuff that uh, we went out of our way to get hold of during the war. It's an extract from a, go a German codebook and tells the Germans what to do. On a particular day of the month, like 22nd, you would choose these rotors, you would set up the... Um, you set up the rotors with these letters, you'd set up the plug board like that, and you would use those to in invent the keyword. The corresponding reduced enigma settings are much easier to follow. This is all we need to do. 
So this is what you would um, kill people for to get hold of so that you could decode messages. Once you've got this, if you have gotten an enigma at home, you can decode any messages that are sent with this enigma. So it's the 21st, isn't it? So on the 21st, get it here. What you would do is set the ANS plug board together, which is those two, and you would uh, set the rotors to the TT position, which is that and that. That has reset it, and by changing this knob, I have set the key length to be 16. We've now got a machine where we can send messages. And, so you can look. There you go. Now, one of the tricks for sending messages is to have some cribs. Like, Sue might want to say Heil Hitler if she was working on a German submarine, but I haven't got the right letters to do Heil Hitler. <laughs> Instead, I wrote, wrote a program to find the four letters that gave you the most words. And uh, T-E-A-R give you more words than East, E-A-S-T. But most of the words you get out of East are more fun than the words you get out of T-A-R. So it's it an amusing diversion to decide what letters to use. So, what you do is you press the red button to reset it to today's code setting. Now, I want you to choose let's say a short word from there, and um, okay, you press it, so E came on, A came on, that's it, so <laughs> there's your message that Barbara's picked up over a radio station, and one of the nice properties of Enigma is that it's reciprocal, that is, when you press the button, for instance, S comes on, when you press S, the corresponding thing comes on the other way around. You can use the same enigma settings to decode the message. So if I give this over to Barbara. So, Barbara resets it, pressing the red button. It's now in the proper settings of the day. And what were the letters on there? E. So you press E, that one. So the first letter of Sue's message was A, and then you press, I think A was the second letter, and the second letter was T, at. That was it. That was it. So we've sent it with a, with a proviso that we've only got one enigma, and therefore we've got a, an enigma distribution problem. <laughs> In principle, we have got uh, a secret message sent across the room that nobody else in the room could decode. To decode it, you need to have the key settings for the day, which was this stuff, number 21. You need to know that. And for instance, if Barbara pulled out the cable or set it to a different initial setting, she wouldn't have got the right word. So the key distribution problem has now come down to key setting problem, distribution problem. How do you get these things around and how do you keep them secure? What happens then for the British trying to intercept these messages back in uh, Bletchley Park? It's a nice, nice place. What was going on there? It's claimed that what was going on in Bletchley Park was the greatest achievement of the 20th century. A huge amount of intellectual work went into it and it was the birth of the modern computer. 
And of course, probably everybody here thinks the Americans invented the programmable computer. What we did is we invented the programmable computer, and then at the end of the war, we destroyed it and pretended we had never done it. The idea was that we had captured millions of enigmas, and then we distributed around the world and said, these are really good secure code machines, why don't we use them? Well, we were busy decoding messages, and we didn't want anybody to know that. So, what was going on in Bletchley? In 1943, towards the end of the war, they had lots of internet, they had a pneumatic network all around the place. They would send tubes down pressurised air hoses, so when they decoded things, they'd drop it in a tube and it would shoot round like some department stores used to have. They had 300 bombs, machines designed for decoding messages. One of the things I'd like is for a volunteer to write a, a four-character bomb to decode the messages that this can do in exactly the same way as the Enigma's 26-key bomb was using for decoding. The Colossus was a machine that built later on to decrypt Lorentz codes, which I mentioned very briefly earlier, and that was a machine that had 3,000 valves in it. And if you compare that a typical valve radio, even ones I remember, had three or four valves, and they would last perhaps a month before they broke down. To get a 3,000 valve machine to work reliably was a, a major achievement. They got through 40 million punch cards a week, running through the, the Colossus, and they had about 2,000 staff. And uh, some messages they would pick up from submarines lasted as long as eight seconds, and they were decoding about 3,000 a day. They obviously had good days and bad days. Sometimes they lost, lost the thread, and it took several months to do things. Other times they were doing it the same day. Well, what are the main ways they were using for decoding? I said that the Enigma couldn't code a letter as itself. This is one of its main weaknesses. Supposing you know Heil Hitler is going to be transmitted in a message. Now that's a good bet with a U-boat transmission. Well, what you do, initially you would do it by hand and then later you'd get the bomb to do it automatically. You would look at the coded message and you'd put Heil Hitler just here, and if that letter is not an H, and that's not an E, and that's not an I, and that's not an L, and that's not an X, because X is used in space, if that's not an H, that's not an I, and so on, then it could say Heil Hitler, because all of the letters have to be different. And if there is a, a matching E or E, then that's not in the right place, and you slide it along one and try again, and you slide along the message until all of the letters don't match. And when you've done that, you can hopefully work out the rotor settings and then decode the whole message. What the bombs did, they would do this automatically, and quite possibly there would be different rotor settings that would come up with the same failure to match. So you would then come up with perhaps 10 or 100 possible settings, you take these over to a room full of thousands of wrens, and they'd all set up their enigmas to one of these settings, different settings each, and they would tap away until some of them came up with some intelligible German. Well, okay. With a bit of hindsight, it's surprising that the Germans didn't realize how important it was to paraphrase every message, to avoid any sort of fixed text in a fixed position. Yes, but they did, they did paraphrase all sorts of things. The Atlantic was divided into grids, and these were given code words. And then at some stage during the war, the code words changed, because they thought if you kept referring to A7, eventually somebody would work out what A7 means. And then they changed everything, and then there would have been a disastrous period when there were more ships and so on, because we didn't know where the codes were. And then we would capture something and start again. But one of the amusing things that happened quite often is 
the people who were worried about the security of German cryptography would make the things more secure. But of course, you can't update all the submarines out there on the same, same day. So you start using the more secure codes, and then just in case there's a submarine out there who can't read the more <coughs> secure code, you also transmit the same message as on the old platform. Now, if you remember the Rosetta Stone, if you send the same message more than once, you're asking for trouble. And this is indeed what happened. Sometimes they would change the available rotors and so on, and the same day, the Russian Park people had decoded the more secure system because they had accidentally transmitted on the old system as well. There was another uh, famous occasion where somebody sent a long message, and the person at the other end probably hadn't got his rotors right, said, I didn't get it. So the guy sent it again. Worse than that, he didn't send it again identically. But he got fed up writing, I don't know, Heil Hitler or whatever it was, and he said HH instead. So that the people receiving the message could see it was a repetition, but it then diverged very slightly. And then by using some skilled thinking at Bletchley Park, they realized what the HH probably stood for, and then they could decode the rest of the message. There's another thing, John Herrell had a nice, I'm getting out of order, Hitler. One of the things I haven't mentioned is that if you send a message repeatedly with the same key settings for the day, there's a chance that the enemy would find out what the key settings are. So you don't do that. Instead, you think of three or four letters, for instance, HIT. You encode those three or four letters with today's key setting. You transmit, the, you transmit that as a very short message. And you then use HIT as your message setting. So your message setting changes for every message and the say it stays the same for the whole day. So if you've chosen HIT, it's quite likely that the next key setting you'll use will be LER. Another thing that John Harrowell noticed is that when you set these the rotors in here, there are little latches on them to enable the next wheel to click along at a different point. And you set those up, and then you turn the wheels, and you're probably assembling like this before you put them in the machine. Well, having got them in the machine, if it says whatever it does here, it says HIT, well, you may as well use HIT as the message setting. So his idea was, once you've got the rotor settings, you have a good chance of getting what the message setting is. And that broke several, several code messages. Uh, another thing is, uh, Bletchley Park called it Jab Jab. I don't think anybody now knows why they called it Jab Jab, but if the wheels at the end of the message were J-A-B, and you send the next message, well, why not send the message setting of the next message to be J-A-B again? You know, the, the, the difficult circumstances the Germans were working under in submarines and the human factors of it meant that there were these weaknesses, and the people in Bletchley Park trying to identify the weaknesses, the more they got, uh, the more they got into decoding things. Another, of course, Bottom to last is QWE, it's just letters taken straight off the keyboard. And the bottom, social engineering, well, why not sink a ship in Boulogne to try and get the word Boulogne appearing in messages, and then you know what to look for. Uh, they would have different pages for each month. Yes. One of the things we did is sink weather ships. Weather ships were scattered around and isolated, and they were often not supplied for about three months. So getting hold of a weather ship, you could get hold of three months' worth of code books. And of course, what you want to do is sink the weather ship and make sure nobody tells 
so you get the crew off it and it's just great fun to read about it and recommend some of the books that I put on on the end of the notes coming out. One thing surprises me, even in my lifetime, 60 years ago, I, during the war, I was in all protection all the services. And when I had a short training, one of them, uh, and a little bit on this, I was taught never to take a text and, and just uh, encrypt it. Completely assume that, that, that there's a distinctive style, and you must avoid that. So just absolutely everything had to be rewritten before it was even corrected. Mm-hmm. So Jim is saying quite rightly that he would have been taught not to send stereotype messages. Right, exactly. But of course, if your officer says send a message to Hitler, uh, you wouldn't probably wouldn't dare change it yeah, under the circumstances. Another thing is the Germans were convinced that the Enigma was impregnable. So they would be less worried about these things. And when they had suspicions that you know, maybe a ship was sunk because the British had intercepted a message and decoded it, they thought, well, the chances of that happening, we would need the Enigma, we would need the code book, we would need to know how it works, and so on, and the ratings would have to have broken the rules and not thrown it overboard in a lead bag, and the the code books are written in water-soluble ink, all of those would have had to have failed. And of course, they were wrong. They also thought that if we sat down and worked out what the code was sort of by default, it would take us thousands of years. And they didn't realize that by using the weaknesses in the Enigma, you could get it down to a few hours rather than thousands of years. So, what I've learned doing this, building the reduced Enigma, is that you ought to build simple prototypes of whatever you're doing. With the benefit of a hundred years of hindsight, if Scherbius had built a reduced enigma first, you know, maybe the Germans would have won the war. Uh, you should avoid illusory complications, which is the standard cryptographer's trap. You get a complicated code and you think of another complicated way of expanding it and twisting things around and so on. These are illusory complications because they persuade you you've got a really complicated system. But if your enemy, the eavesdropper, doesn't know what the complication is to start with, just twisting the wires around a bit more, like putting on the reflector, makes no difference to the difficulty of decoding it. And occasionally, adding in more complications adds more structure, which enables you to decode the message. And I've got some slightly smaller writing. You should either make things so simple you know what's wrong, which is the example of the reducing it, or you should make them so complicated you've no idea what's wrong, which happens to be what the Germans did with the real Enigma. And the other thing is, I think if they had checked the maths a bit more carefully, they would have noticed that the 26 factorial, 26 cubed, and so on, were overestimates of what was actually going on. Go back to the idea of kid crypto, and teasing children, students, and adults about these ideas. I think doing this with a, a toy Enigma raises all of the issues of key distribution and makes it clear how keys have got to get around and some of the excitement of, say, the Enigma film, which popularized it, comes across. It's a really good way of combining history and science, and it creates challenging problems for students. So, for example, if we were computer scientists here, there are some programming problems you could try doing. Which four letters make the most words? And uh, which rotors should you use? And when I started doing this, I didn't know I had to choose the rotors carefully. And uh, what sequence of permutations should you use on the unit selector inside the machine to simulate rotors working properly? 
The reason I took some care doing that was so that if we ever get round to building a bomb to decode it, then the sort of work like a real enigma does, and it does. Then for the other 34 steps of the 50-way uniselector, what random code did you use over those 34 steps? This is an interesting problem because you don't want to have a code that is easily broken by frequency analysis, which Jim mentioned you could use for breaking off the Throckmorton's code. So the other 34 permutations on the unit selector have been chosen to even out the frequency analysis, and then the bottom is to build a bomb, and no doubt a reduced bomb would be a bomb mix. The bomb is the machine used at Bletchley Park to automatically look for where code words would match up to indicate what the rotor settings might have been in the message. Oops, that's a bit round. So to summarise, before we have any questions and discussions, we've talked about history, we've seen that it's educational and fun. I wondered about whether I should call it maths or science or computer science. It's a mixture of both, and I think what computer science is, is getting the mathematics into something that works. And the enigma here is obviously a mechanical thing that works, and if you wrote programs to simulate it, then it's a computer getting the maths to work. It brings to light the mathematics that I showed you right at the beginning, which is so dry and dull. Well, I've lost it now, but mind you know the, what the formulas look like. It's, it's not a way to communicate what, what is going on behind this stuff. We talked a lot about the key distribution problem, and I hope I've left that sort of poised in the air to be solved next week. Because with the technology we've talked about, it is an insoluble problem. In the 1970s, the Americans thought of a way of doing it. And then in the 1990s, the Americans admitted that we had done it in the 50s, but they kept secret, kept it secret in the meantime. So next week, I'm going to talk about public key cryptography, which solves the key distribution problem. So, I'll be very happy to open to a discussion and have any questions. Yes, How much more difficult would it have been to write into the thing if they had not had this great before, never having a lot of these codes for the right now? I think I should do some sums to try and answer that. I don't know off the top of my head. It would have made it very much harder. Um, the machine like the bomb, which was the state of the art machine, would not have worked at all. Um, there were some cases, uh, a wren called Mavis of Bletchley Park saw a long message and she was looking at this. Now, you can imagine the sort of mentality of crossword solvers and so on as they were employed to look at this. She noticed that the long message didn't have an X in it. And she then hypothesized maybe the message was all X's. And indeed that was the case. The Italians in this case were going to do some, some military activity and to disguise the messages they would need to do to be sending during the military activity. For days preceding that activity, they sent dummy messages. And some bored chap sent a, a message entirely of X's. And Mavis noticed that and managed to work out what the message was. That is an example of something that couldn't have happened had they maybe not got that flaw, because it would have contained every letter in it. Sure. I realize that an organization which achieved such an astonishing uh, result as the lecture did could not have been hierarchically structured in the same way that a military organization is, for example. But nonetheless, uh, one wonders about certain key figures like Turing. Uh, how would his particular role, you think, have been into that great 
collective effort? This is a really good question. I haven't mentioned, and I'm sure many of you know, that Alan Turing, who's one of the founding fathers of computer science, was one of the clever people working at Bletchley Park. He was also a very idiosyncratic person. Uh, one of the things he did is he changed his coffee mug or tea mug to the radiator. Although I, I thought that was idiosyncratic when I read it, but then when I went, went to my bathroom and couldn't find the nail scissors, I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> He was an idiosyncratic person, very creative, and he essentially designed the bomb and the Colossus and got many of these things to work. And without him, the war would certainly have lasted a few years longer. But the initial operation of Blessed Parkstream was saying was very ad hoc. Later on, it became more organised as it employed thousands of people. And right after the war, it became very bureaucratic in its organisation, a lot of people resigned. Usually, I think they employed Navy Wing, they? they thought yes, the right. Navy Wing would not the Army. Yeah. Interestingly, you got your name on the if, if somebody knows the name, I'll say, yes, that's, that's right, because I do know who it is, but I've forgotten. And it's, it's one of the problems of being British. We've only got our side of the story. It's also true the Germans were decoding our naval ciphers. And one of the things I find really surprising is that the Navy was quite happy using a more primitive cipher than the Enigma. The Germans were decoding it. We had people in Bletchley Park who knew how to decipher the Enigma, and also they knew how to encode better than the Germans were doing it. And somehow that better way of encoding never got into the Navy. But of course it took decades for the, the Bletchley secret to be revealed after the war. Yeah. Uh, one wonders whether the Germans may have been hyper-cautious and chosen just never to reveal uh, as much on their side as, as the British had. Mm -hmm. So what was the reason why Churchill wanted the destruction of process and all the changes in the Why was it all destroyed? Why was it all destroyed? I think because of the British attitude to secrecy. And because we had captured a lot of enigmas, we understood them very well and we distributed around the world so that we could decode commercial messages uh, at leisure. Um, Didn't have numbers. Because well, you can obviously do everything you want to do with 26 letters, and you can spell out things. Uh, if you add another 10 buttons to do the numbers, you end up with 36 wires, and it starts becoming a bigger, clunky machine. This thing weighs 12 kilograms. The earlier ones were heavier. And it's got to be something that you've got to carry around in a field car or in a submarine. I think, too, in those days, if you increase the number of keys, you would also have uh, started hitting reliability problems. Now, if you get salt water in it or something, you still, well, particularly if you get salt water in it, you still want it to work. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm sure some of the historians here will know some of these incidents, which must have been very difficult decisions. Churchill and others would have known that some ship or convoy was being targeted because they had decrypted things. 
then sometimes they let the convoy be sunk because if they protected it or changed its route or whatever, they would reveal that they had been decoding messages. So sort of the ways of disguising it, if you That's right, now Colossus was used for the Lorenz. Yes. But the bombs and the Colossus were both destroyed. Colossus was used for reading the Rams codes. Yes. Thank you. One of the things I think, well, I'm British, I think one of the things that's sad, the surviving bombs that are still around, because lots were made, they've all got names like Atlanta. They're all American machines because the Americans didn't destroy them. Rack your mind and try and. Well, well, if you can find the key to the house, somebody will be very, very interested in that. Originals still exist. I think there's about a hundred um, of different types in different states. So the mainly ones are incredibly rare, mainly ones you mentioned, kind of full of growth, and we did some in the submarines and some, but it lost wherever. But others are a bit more common or don't have their growth in this country. All in the world, we can get there were, of course, commercial enigmas widely in use before the war. And, of course, Bletchley Park had thousands of enigma coppers that worked electrically the same way, but were used to try and decode the German messages. I think the Germans, oh, and again, perhaps historians can correct me, I think the Germans made the enigmas, and the Poles got hold of some, and the Polish Secret Service were decoding German messages before the war started. And when the Poles got invaded early on in the war, they escaped and took their intelligence over to the British. The question here is, if 
you're not transmitting a message in German, but you're transmitting a random sequence of numbers, how would you know whether you've decoded it? And the answer is you don't know unless you already have the means of decoding it. So one of the standard techniques is to use uh, a one-time pad, a list of random numbers to help generate things, and with that you have a secure system. Shall we have one more question, because it's now just just after 7 o'clock. So. Uh, well, during the war? Uh, I don't know in detail how they worked. I know they had imaginative names like Naval Cipher 1 and Naval Cipher 2. That's, that's all I know about them. Well, early in the war they used the Playfair Cipher, which is not a very secure system. Okay, well, thank you very much. Yeah.